All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, we're clearly saving the best for last year. Before the analyst panel, we have the uh, crude oil tanker shipping sector panel, um, and I think it's going to be a good one. So uh, again, I'm Chris Weatherby, senior transportation shipping analyst at, at City Research. Um, very pleased to be hosting this panel. So uh, in terms of panelists, we have a great group here. So hopefully it'll be an interactive discussion with everybody. They certainly are off to a good start already. Uh, to my left, we have Bob Burke, who is CEO of Ridgeberry Tankers. Uh, we have Ted Patron who is Vice Chairman of Navios Corporation. We have uh, Lois Abraki, who's the CEO of International Seaways, and we also have Christian Waldgrave, who's the Head of Research at TK Corporation. So, you know, it, it's a good panel with a lot of folks who have a lot of deep insights into the market, and so I guess we'll go ahead and jump in, but would love to have people participate, so if you have questions, just raise your hand. So, you know, we, we started off the day here with a pretty exciting dry bulk panel, and I guess my goal is to try to make this one pretty exciting too, and we have tanker batting cleanup here. Um, may or may not be a reflection of where we are in the cycle, but let's talk about it. Um, you know, Ted, you, you have some great looking notes right there in front of you, so I'm gonna pick on you first. So if maybe you could give us sort of your, your, <laughs> your view of the lay of the land here, um, you know, where are we from a demand perspective? Um, you know, sort of your view on sort of the current market and, and, and maybe a little bit of how you see 2018 playing out. It's been a tough go of late. You just want to get your sense of where the market is today. Let me start off with some good news. Um, it's funny because uh, I know we're going to get into this whole thing with IMO regulation and such, but the research team told me today that there's been 10 V scrapped and only five delivered. So we're almost into the end of Q1 with negative fleet growth. Now, I'm not saying you're going to have negative fleet growth this year, but you may have a lot less than we expected going in because of some of these regulations. Having said that, it's a difficult year. You've still got high stocks. Um, you've, you have the core uh, OPEC not pumping. Um, you know, what happened last year was not only did you have new buildings come in, but you had, you had floating storage come back in, right? You had the contango go to backwardation, and you probably had 25, 30 of those these come back in. So it was a huge amount of just that have to be sort of, you know, you have to chew through the inventory here. It's going to take a while. It's not going to be good. But I can tell you that if anyone is out there looking at the spot rates uh, that you see on paper, those aren't the actual rates that a lot of us here are earning. The pools are doing well. It's not great, but it's not what you see on paper. Okay. Um, Lois, how do you think the demand environment plays out over the course of 18? So I want to talk about, I want to kind of, you know, sort of pull them apart, I guess, for a minute and talk first about demand. We obviously know about what's going on with OPEC. We have another meeting coming up in a couple of months here, but you know, what's the demand environment look like today and how do you see that progressing over the course of 18? So I, I think demand is actually uh, you know, one of the high spots. Uh, essentially, you've got 4% GDP growth worldwide, mm -hmm. anticipated for 2018. Um, you know, we had a million and a half of uh, crude oil demand or product demand increase last year. It looks like 1.4 million barrels a day this year. Um, most of that comes from emerging markets in the east, and the crude, um, incremental crude is coming from the west for supply. So from a demand picture, and a long time ago, um, you know, when you learn about the business, everybody says demand is king. And we need that for fundamentally health and market, right? So having that year-on-year -year strong demand growth at least um, is a positive for us on the horizon. Sure. Okay. Now that makes sense. And Christian, maybe your thoughts there too. How do you think about sort of the sources of production uh, globally? So 
We've heard a lot recently about the U.S. producing, I think, 11 million barrels. How do you think about that in the construct of what's going on with the OPEC producers? You know, where do you see the demand coming from or where the supply of crude is coming from over the course of this year? Yeah, there's no doubt that the um, reduction in, in OPEC exports out of the Middle East has been a negative for crude tankers, especially for our sectors in the Suez Max. What you've seen is uh, that reduction in cargoes from the Middle East has really forced more VLCCs into the Atlantic Basin, uh, competing with the Suez Maxes out of West Africa. Uh, so going forward, we do need that Middle East production to come back, but at the same time, as you pointed out, US crude exports are on the rise. Um, they're pretty regularly now about one and a half million barrels a day, uh, and sometimes hitting two million barrels a day. We think there's certainly scope for that to go up to two and a half million barrels a day by the end of the year. It's really the infrastructure that's constraining it. It's just getting that crude uh, to the tidewater and getting it out. Um, but there's developments on that side in terms of deep bottlenecking the pipelines and getting more crude down to the US coast. And what we're seeing is more of that crude is going long haul as well. So a portion of it goes to uh, Europe on the mid-sized ships and a portion to Latin America, but an increasing amount is going on the VLCCs to China, which is obviously a big ton-mile route. Um, and so I think that's a positive development on the Atlantic side. So once we get the Middle East exports back, and then with the U.S. crude exports rising as well, once you've got those two engines firing, I think that's what's going to kickstart the crude recovery. Okay, makes sense. Thanks, Nick. Welcome. Um, too many one-on-ones. <laughs> we're keeping you busy today. I'm sorry about that. I'm asking for dry cargo ships, <laughs> which I don't know. So. <laughs> but we're going to try to make this as exciting as, as dry bulk, or at least we're, at least we're giving it a shot. Um, Bob, maybe you could weigh in a little bit too. Just want to get your perspective on the demand environment, sort of any... any Anything you see, you know, this has been an environment where we've seen that sort of this, quote, synchronized global growth, and, you know, obviously that's, I think, driving a, a decent amount of demand, but when you think about, um, you know, ton-mile demand and different lengths of haul and sort of directions of crude, you know, any sort of comments and anything a little bit different than we've heard at all, or, or how are your views there? More is better, but um, not to be a politician, but that's an interesting question, but I just want to go back to Ted's comment about scrapping for a second. Sure. Um, you know, you said 10 ships, Ted. The numbers we've seen, we've seen the ship by ship is closer to 15, and from what I hear from my friends on the scrapping side, there are another 10 ships being discussed in the market, you know, as, as we sit here. And just like on the dry side, and the scrapping is, a, we all know roughly what the demand is going to be. Is it 1.5 a day? Is it 1.4, 1.6 million barrels a day? It's, it's not going to be two and a half. So we're not, that's not going to surprise us. The supply of ships coming in is not going to surprise us drastically. I think what can surprise us is ton miles. Um, and where the oil comes from, where it moves to, and some of that is a pricing mechanism between different crudes. Um, I think what can surprise us the most, the quickest, is the scrapping. Um, and what drives the rate of scrapping is a couple things. Um, the volatility of the scrap price drives scrapping, because if you have an older ship, you don't want to be the guy with 42,000 light tons of steel who loses 100 bucks a ton because they decide to wait out a little bit too long. And what also drives it is the market, of course, and if you have a fleet of 10, 20 ships, and the older ones aren't levered, and you can pick up 15, 20 million bucks very quickly um, in a market that's just, I know, Ted, you're correct, we are making better rates than what's published, but the market is chewing up cash for anybody who has any kind of bank debt. It's a quick source of cash. We saw it on the dry side. I think the numbers of ships that got scrapped on the dry side amazed everybody, and I think that's what we'll see um, in our sector, is the scrapping will continue to surprise us. All right, so I got 
So I skipped the real question? Yeah, no, no, Good. It's, it's all right. I got five, what, five to 10 from Ted. I got 15 here. Uh, Lois, can you, can you raise them in terms of scraps that you've seen so far? And you know, maybe what are your projections for the full year in terms of what we think can come out of the market? There, there are at least 15. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with the numbers. I mean, I think between you know, negotiation and execution, yeah, that's, yeah. that's where the, the differences are. Um, and you know, one of the things that we've been tracking is kind of every ship that's over 16 years old, of which on the VLCCs you have 122. So why, why are we tracking um, over 16? Because we're looking at you know, every two and a half years you have to make a dry dock, a capex. So every owner that comes up against that is going to look at and run that math and um, make the logical uh, decision for them, right? So we haven't had any scrapping um, really since the end of 2013. So 14, 15, 16, 17, you had some in the end of 17, but other than that, you haven't had a lot. So all of um, the owners are gonna take a hard look at whether or not um, they, they wanna invest and they're gonna make that money back in the next two years. And that's a hard choice right now when um, older ships are making single digits. So. It may pay, as Bob was saying, steel prices are up. It might pay for you to sell that vessel and reinvest that money in a higher earning asset. Okay, makes sense. And then, uh, Nick, I mean, what's your perspective on, on, on scrapping? I mean, how, how good could it be, or how, how big could the numbers be this year? How quickly can that get us to a better equilibrium in the market? Does it, is there enough capacity to take out this year that you could be in a better environment? Well, in order to be able to, to reach a level that uh, will be meaningful, uh, we, all of us will have to put up with a bit more suffering for the remaining of the year. Because um, there are, uh, as you know, ships that are approaching their 20 years uh, of age, and as long as they're not due for special survey in the next six months, if the market turns, uh, I think that they will continue trading, so they will put a lead, a lead on the market. However, uh, I, I believe that with all the changes that uh, we will be expecting to come out in April and May, uh, depending on the uh, 05 emission mm -hmm. uh, that we are expecting from the IMO to come out, I, I think we are going to see uh, increase, increasing uh, scrapping. I think. Uh, uh, 400, I think uh, an Aframax was sold last week at around 470, which is a very, uh, which makes a VLCC at around 450, which is in excess of 20 million. So I think we should not be greedy here. If you have a, a VLCC which you paid, let's say, you know, 80 million dollars 20 years ago, and you can sell it 20 years uh, later for 20 million, you must have not, you know, you must not be very smart if you have not made really serious money over that 20 year period, uh, which many times it's the case. So the short answer is that I expect uh, after the news in April, May from the IMO uh, to, to have even more uh, scrapping going because I doubt there will be an extension given to the 0.5 emission. Yeah, no, absolutely, I, I would agree with that. Uh, Christian, what, what do you, so within, within TK, how are you forecasting supply growth this year, vessel supply growth this year? How do you think, when you put all of it together, the puts and takes, what are you guys expecting the fleet to grow this year? Yeah, it's definitely going to come down from the levels we've seen in the last couple of years. So 2016, you saw about 6% fleet growth across the whole tanker fleet. It was about 5% last year, although, as Ted said, it was actually higher in rea reality because of the ships coming back from floating storage. Right. 
I think this year, you look at the order book, it is slowly coming off. Uh, we have probably passed the peak of deliveries now, or, or are at the peak of deliveries on the crude side. And on the scrapping, um, you know, at the start of the year, I had a forecast of 10 to 12 million deadweight of scrapping. We've already had 4 million deadweight in the first couple of months, so mm -hmm. we're having to revise those estimates upwards. So our forecast for fleet growth this year now is about 2 to 2.5%. Two uh, it differs by sector, of course. It's probably uh, a little bit higher, obviously, on the crude than on the products. Um, but even then, it's probably only 3% on the crude, 3.5%, something like that. So that fleet growth is coming down, and as long as demand stays strong uh, and we get some ton mile growth, then I think it's going to give the tanker market a real chance for a recovery maybe late this year into 2019. Okay. Our general sense has been similar to that for looking for the beginnings of improvement in the back half of the year, but I don't know, Bob, if you have a comment, or what do you think about timing of how these things could potentially work out? Obviously, we'd all love to know exactly when it's going to happen. What are your thoughts? Um, Wait a minute, let me write this down, hold on. Yeah, I'm, an, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will answer your question, but um, I look back at this past winter and the worst of everything happened. Uh, backwardation was kind of severe, so ships are encouraged to move quickly and get rid of the cargo. The weather's been great, so there's no ice. Up in the Baltics, there's no uh, fog in the Bosphorus. You know, China's ice-free. The North Atlantic's fairly calm until recently. So things just move along swimmingly, which is not what we want to see happen. Um, and, and all the de-story, all the de-stocking, that's heard also, and all the ships coming back out. So, um, you know, we had all the worst things happen. And whenever we look at these troughs or peaks, they're going to last forever. I, I think by the end of the year, uh, we'll be by Thanksgiving. By Thanksgiving, that's what I'm saying. Okay, that's great. Ted, I'm sure you have exactly written down in your sheet when it's oh, going to turn. Take so a stand. You take? take a stand. Huh. Uh, you know, the thing about it, freight is it, it acts like commodity. People say it actually is a commodity. Um, coming up through the trading side, I can tell you that when it happens, I've been there on the floor, or I've heard from the, the charters when you own the ships. You know, on a Monday, the guy says, I don't need ships because nothing's going to happen for the next three years. And by Thursday, they're getting, saying, give me three ships for three years because this market's running away. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's some, sometime in Q4, sometime around Thanksgiving, you can have this confluence of events where OPEC starts pumping more, so price comes down, contango in the forward curve, you have the opposite, floating store, you take another 20 ships out immediately. This can happen, as I tell the traders, from a Monday to a Thursday, this thing can turn very quickly. And I think that day is sometime in mid-Q4. 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 Sometime okay. around Thanksgiving. Okay. American right. Thanksgiving. We're getting some consensus, Lois. I don't know if you want to chime in. Can't have consensus, right? Um, <laughs> You know, I guess I'll, I'll give a little bit longer reply. I don't know how much different it is, but, you know, on the product side, and I know they just walked off the stage, we do have um, MRs and Panamaxes, and what we're seeing in our fleet right now is that the MRs and the Panamaxes are actually um, out-earning the larger crude, and I kind of take them as a little bit of a leading indicator. You know, you draw down the products, and those guys start to move first in response to the ARB. So I do think that um, we will start to receive see a recovery coming in maybe Q3, but I think there is gonna be some pain before we get there. And you know, part of that is um, the drawdown of inventories, and we're sort of having a famine of cargoes on the water when you combine the backwardation, the drawdown of inventories, OPEC cutting back, yep. and it's painful. And so you have to constantly run the calculations on your ships to say, uh, you know, is this ship uh, the wisest to keep or to not keep, right? So that's a little bit longer, not 
too much different, I don't think. Okay, so you're a little longer than Thanksgiving, so you're going maybe Christmas or beyond, I guess. I was saying like a, a you know, starting in like April, I think you're going to start to see it on the products. Yeah. And then you'll just start maybe not aligned to the moon, but a little bit recovery as we go. Okay. I just want to, since we have some products, I may just give a product kick to. Sure. We're getting a lot of calls, right? All the smart money is coming in early. They want to take the ship. There's a reason the ships are going at 14 yeah. and 15 and they're trading at 10 mm -hmm. because they see the same numbers we do going forward. So I think. From traders. Uh, from the traders. Yeah. And from the, yeah. the shorts, the natural yeah. Yeah. shorts, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you'll start seeing that in the fall. The smart money will start coming in in the Vs and our phones will start ringing. And that's when you just sit back and say, uh, talk to Nick. Because <laughs> he'll. Because <laughs> he'll. He'll, he'll put it straight, that's for sure. <laughs> so Nick, what's your view? I, I, I gotta get everybody on the panel's view on, on sort of when this turn happens. Well, <clears throat> I hope all the markets to be at sync. When I say, you know, I think we are today where containers were uh, in 2016. At, at that time, any container, uh, if it was 11,000 boxes or 1,000 boxes, you could charter for four or 5,000. Uh, last year, the same time, you could charter for $6,000 any Cape, dry cargo, or uh, Ultramax. And today, you charter for $6,000 anything from, a, a, you know, Panamax up to, to a VLCC. So I think we are getting to this stage. Uh, I would rather have the chains uh, earlier rather than later because we have Posidonia in Greece and we want to have some parting going and, and good spirits. But uh, I, I, I agree that uh, most probably it will be a, a fourth quarter. Uh, a fourth quarter. But I, I believe that we are very close to where those uh, the other markets uh, have gone. Got it. Christian, thoughts? Yeah, I hate to uh, have the same kind of uh, view as everyone else, but certainly we're looking at a, a sort of a cue for, for timing for the uh, turnaround. Of course, that's not set in stone. There's a number of things that can happen between now and then. I think OPEC is a big one, right? I think we're all expecting that OPEC will start to exit from their um, supply constraints second half of the year, but they don't always go based on fundamentals. It's a political decision. Mm. Maybe Saudi wants to keep the oil price high before they uh, IPO Aramco. So there's some uncertainty with regards to the timing. Um, but I agree with what Ted said. When the market goes, it goes. And um, the way I see it is it's like a, a, a coil that's being wound up. Uh, you know, the, the backwardated market, the OPEC cuts, the inventory's coming down. Once that reverses, it can move very quickly. And I think uh, once you get into 2019, and then 2020 is going to be a really interesting year with the IMO regulations. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of volatility that year as well. So I would agree with the Q4 of this year to be the turnaround, but probably... 19, and then I think 20 is going to be the interesting year for sure. You're all copycats. <laughs> You're all copycats. So, so let's talk a little bit about IMO and your thoughts there in, in terms of how you all are going to address the issue um, and, and maybe how you think the market kind of plays out as people go through and, and get prepared for either making incremental investments on assets that right now are fairly depressed from a price perspective or they decide to see what happens in the market and trade. What do you guys think? Maybe, maybe Bob, start with you. What do you think about 2020? Um, well, it's never paid for a ship owner to be first mover. Uh, so, you know, as far as um, scrubbers, I don't think they make any sense for the investment. And I've seen the designs and what it takes to do to a ship. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot. And, and you know, the whole thought that you can dump the sulfur in the ocean sounds very quaint. <laughs> I mean, how long is that going to last, right? Uh, it's not going to last very long. So, I mean, I'm not in the business of 
trying to play an R between different types of fuel. You know, I'm in the business of moving oil. So if everyone else has to uh, pay for more expensive oil, then I'll pay for more expensive oil. A lot of our ships are older, so I'll have to pay more than they do, but my capital cost is lower. So I think there'll be, a, um, uh, eventually there'll be a low sulfur uh, bunker fuel, probably fairly quickly. Um, I think there'll be a lot of disruption in the market, you know, quite a bit. There aren't a lot of places. That residual fuel, it, it's residual, it's produced. It has to go somewhere, and that everybody can refine it. The U.S. Gulf is pretty good at refining it, so, you know, my guess is a lot of it will be moved there, probably on Suez Maxis, you know, especially out of Russia. Um, so we're not first movers. It's not a good move. You know, we're not in the business of arbing fuel prices. I can do that somewhere else if I really want to do it. Um, we are in the business of moving um, oil, and I think more oil will have to move. I think there'll be a lot of disruptions in the market, and disruptions are good for um, people who provide transportation. Uh, you know, bad weather, um, uh, anything that's disruptive is, is in, it causes inefficiencies in the transportation market is good for people who provide the transportation because there's a shortage of transportation in the system if, if it's disrupted. So that's my overall take. Ted, do you, from, from a Navio's perspective, are you expecting an investment in scrubbers? How are you thinking about your fleet? Um, uh, let me answer by starting off with the water ballast treatment because something happened internally. Two years ago, our technical team said to us, let's not be the first movers here because we think in a year from now, they'll be twice as good at half the price. And that curve actually continued to where honestly, the cost for water ballast treatment now is de minimis. And we, we think the same thing will happen. As you brought up, Rob, the issue is, will the IMO change their mind on the open loop scrubbers, which are the ones where you have discharged theoretically clean water into the, into the salt water, into the sea, may that not happen? Um, our issue has been, let, let's not put the refineries on board the ships because it really is a, almost a refinery. It, it's a $4 million for VLCC for this. Exactly. So let's let the refineries on the shore take care of that. And maybe, as Barb said, maybe there's a big spread in the, oil, in, in the fuel pricing on, on January 1st, 2020. But well, we think that will narrow as the refineries start producing more. And I think it'll be not de minimis, but it'll be, it'll be narrow enough that looking back, the people that had put on scrubbers, especially the, the, the first ones, will probably, they won't regret it, but it won't be the most the basic economic decision they made. Lois, your thoughts? Any investments from International Seaways? So, you know, we're continuing to, you know, really dig into it. And, I, you know, what I think is that we're in a little bit of a standoff between um, ship owners and refiners, and mm -hmm. there'll be an ARB, and then when there's an ARB, which equals inefficiency, um, investment makes that go away over time, right? So to me, it's how long, you know, how wide will the RB, how long will it last, and will it pay to put scrubbers on? Um, we have not yet made that decision with our fleet, but it's possible that we'd, we would do, um, you know, a little bit of a portfolio approach with part of the fleet. We've heard that from a, from a few people, or I've heard that from a few people in different sectors over the course of today. Uh, Christian, from a TK Group perspective, is there a sense that maybe you think about your fleet a third, a third, a third, you have different approaches, and maybe there's some investment in scrubbers up front for a small portion of the fleet? Is that sort of the thought process, or are you still in the you know, acquiring information stage? Yeah, I think from a TK perspective, we're probably not going to go the scrubber route for the conventional tankers. Uh, I think, like uh, some of the panelists have said, it just it's kind of ridiculous if the goal is to reduce sulfur emissions that it's done on thousands and thousands of tiny scrubbers on board ships and 
not in a large land-based refinery. Uh, it's just way more efficient that way. And you're, you're you know, the, it's a big capital cost. We don't know how these scrubbers are going to operate. What's the maintenance going to be like on them? Uh, and the scrubber, you know, that kind of works as long as that big gap between fuel oil and the low sulfur fuel persists mm -hmm. over time. Uh, but it could be that, that the price narrows and then um, the scrubber isn't getting you the economic value that you thought it would. Um, and we have a lot of experience already with the low sulfur gas oil, obviously trading in and out of the environmental control areas on the Aframaxes in the US Gulf and in the, in the North Sea. Um, so from a technical standpoint, we're pretty comfortable with moving just to the lower sulfur uh, fuel. Nick, you were shaking your head there, so I want to make sure to get to you. I'm guessing from a Chaco's perspective, it's not necessarily an investment you're looking to make right now? Well, I, I would not, uh, you know, I would not only talk about uh, our company, you know, as, as, as Intertanko, and I think as all the uh, uh, international organizations that represent ship owners, uh, there has been a very, very small uh, scrubber investment, and rightly so. I think, as you said, uh, first of all, I think it's uh, hypocritical to decide not to pollute, to pollute the atmosphere and pollute the seas. Mm -hmm. It's very dangerous for our seafarers. They will, uh, you know, you have all these acids on, on, on the ship. Uh, and we're very happy that uh, so far, less than 4% of, uh, of uh, any of, uh, of the vessels have been uh, uh, added with scrubbers. And the ones are specialized ships trading in specialized areas. So I think the industry has shown a very uh, strong uh, resistance to scrubbers. Uh, also, the initial scrubbers uh, are going to be like the, you know, the initial uh, mobile phones so that you used to have to have a bag to carry them into. So it's going to be for the resale value of the ship. The, you know, the, the first uh, scrubbers on the ships are going to be, uh, will reduce the resale of those ships because technology will move uh, forward. I think the answer we have, uh, I strongly believe that the way the ship owners have reacted for the first time, very, very organized, there will be enough uh, low sulfur uh, uh, product at the time. I don't know if you can call it fuel or what, but uh, 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 at the time. And if it's not, we've done a study uh, that by reducing by 20% our top speed, we can reach the same uh, output. And I think by reducing our speed, that will be also good for ton miles in, in the industry until the, the refineries produce this. So I think this is what we're sticking with, and that's what we're doing also as a company. I think if we continue doing this as an industry, we will see that I believe that uh, January 1st, 2020 will be very much like uh, the uh, millennium bug. Everybody was expecting the computers to destroy and New York to fall apart. And at the end of the day, there were, it was a, a non-event. Okay. Uh, Bob, you mentioned maybe some incremental demand in different trade lanes for different products that could emerge from some of these you know, changes in refinery patterns and so on and so forth from the IMO um, restrictions. And then we mentioned, Nick mentioned slow steaming, which is, I think, also a, a potential solution here. You know, when you look out, is there the sort of silver lining of all of this is maybe a little bit of incremental demand for this sector in particular or, you know, ref uh, product as well as, as tanker side? Yeah, I think um, I think Lois said, you know, there'll be ARBs, and uh, and there'll be not just pricing ARBs, but physical um, incompatibility between where the residual starts and where it has to be refined, and that'll just increase 10 miles. I think it'll be inevitable. Okay. 
no, that's helpful. So let's talk a little bit about sort of preferences of, of, of ship sizes. So I think pretty much everyone on the panel has VLCC exposure for the most part. So I guess I, maybe I'll, I'll start there and, and get a sense of, you know, maybe Lois, I'll start with you. you you've been more active more recently than, than some folks. So talk about sort of where you think the opportunities lie at this point in the cycle. Covering shipping for a long time, you realize that the smarter players are the ones who are making moves that sometimes seem bold when the market is maybe a little bit uneven. So talk a little bit about sort of how you guys are thinking about the market and where you want, you know, where you're putting your capital to work. So we've, we've been, uh, you know, independent for about 15 months and had not uh, really done investment for a long time uh, with our predecessor company. And we had the benefit of the fact that the market is actually um, at a cyclical low point so that we can invest during what we think is the right time in the market. And we've said that we wanted to renew on the crude side first and then um, from our capital perspective, and on the um, product side, we do like MR vessels, but it's a more liquid market and we have more time charters and uh, bare boats on that side. And we feel like there's enough flexibility in that market that um, we'll put our, deploy the capital on the crude first, which is what we've done, and then um, do charter ends on the MR side, which is a little bit more flexible marketplace. But we think that um, the barbells, um, we like both ends of the market. Okay. And then, um Christian, I wanted to ask you, so your view, similar questions, or where do you think sort of opportunities are within the sector? Where, where, what are the best opportunities that you're seeing right now? Yeah. Well, we only have half of VLCC, so that's our VLCC yeah. exposure. Fair but uh, obviously, we're majority Aframax and Suezmax. And um, we've done a lot of moves over the last couple of years to, to grow that fleet. We did the principal maritime acquisition uh, in 2015. And then last year, we acquired Tanker Investments Limited mm -hmm. uh, and made sure that those ships stayed within the TNK system. So we've built up a pretty good fleet size now. We have 58 ships, pretty evenly split between Aframax and Suezmax, and those are really the markets that we know really well. You know, um, we've been doing the Aframax since the inception of TK. Uh, we've been in the Suezmax market a long time now as well. Um, so I think on the, in terms of the sort of where we are in the cycle, I think we're happy with the fleet size we have. Of course, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I think as the market starts to recover, we might look at in charters as a way of uh, playing up. And we did that in the last cycle in 2013, 2014. We were pretty successful on chartering in tonnage at the low point and riding the, the cycle up and making the spread. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, Bob, yeah. go for it. Um, we're the only private company up here. Kind of wonder why they invited me. But um, so we look at things quite a bit differently. We don't have a, a one public entity or one big entity that has to, that people have to buy into. When we, do, when we buy ships, we look at discrete transactions with a discrete group of investors. Um, Riverstone is our, our major backer and is involved in all our deals. But we start with a clean sheet of paper and we look at the different sectors and we look at the different age profiles. So we may decide right now that uh, five to 10 year old MRs are the right buy or 10 to 15 year old Suez's. And so we can talk to investors and say, we think this sector and this age profile makes sense right now because of this, and we want to put this kind of leverage on this, or no leverage, or, or, or a bond deal, or whatever we think is the best structure for an investment at this particular point in the cycle. And what that enables us to do is um, provide the investor with a clean investment, not uh, to dilute their, um, and there's nothing wrong with the public company at all. It's, it's, it's a different way of looking at things. So um, right now we look more towards, you know, the middle-aged Suez's. And uh, if we bought those, it would be just, you know, a, a clean play. It gives us a little more clarity. 
Um, it doesn't give the investors the liquidity maybe that, uh, that you folks provide them. It's just a different way of looking at things. Okay. That's helpful. Ted, looks like you want to say something. I always want to follow what Bob has to say. Um, Listen, I think if you look at the new building prices on Vs, and that's something that we focus on, um, on inflation-adjusted pricing, 82, 84 millions, if, you know, it's, it's as low as it's been for 25 years. Um, that's why you've seen a lot of people step in when it was lower, right? I think to touch below 80, but I don't know if that was without scrubbers, I don't know. But, it, it, you know, there, you're at a level now where I think people looking back 10 years from now can say, well, I really should have stepped in when all that ordering uh, was done. So, there's, so we're, you're looking at asset prices, there's still some... Uh, good deals to be done out there. I think also the differential, right, say between if you take a 15, you might as well take a 15-year-old and scrap it because the differential between the 15-year-old pricing and scrapping is very minimal. So you scrap the ship, you get your circuit 20 million, you pay off half of your debt, and you buy an eight-year-old at 45 million. I think it's a good renewal for some, some of the owners that don't have to go out and get a new building. So we don't need n more new buildings. I mean, there's there's less new buildings coming as there are, you know, older 17-year-old vessels, which is why I think a lot of our positive, once it turns, the market really is going to turn. But I do think um, asset pricing is, um, a, it's, it's still a good time to step in. It would have been better last year for a lot of people, but still good. Sure. And they would have lost money in the past year of suffering. Yeah, so you're paying it now. You're paying the 82 versus the 78, and yeah. you're still paying the same price. Nick, want to get your sort of thoughts there. I mean, what do you do? You know, where, where, are the, where are the opportunities that you're seeing? I mean, we are a bit uh, different in, uh, we just completed, uh, today we announced the completion of 30% uh, growth of our fleet. We added another 16 vessels in the last two years, uh, 15 of them just recently. And, uh, you know, so we, we added two VLCCs, a very diversified portfolio, two VLCCs, one LNG, uh, two shuttle tankers, two Panamaxes, and nine Aframaxes. Mm -hmm. So this shows that we do not have uh, you know, the silver ball to find out exactly, but we go according to whatever uh, the appetite of our clients are. And, uh, of course, we try to time our investment in the, right, in the right time of the cycle. And all of the ships have been delivered with, the, you know, up to 12 years time charters, 15 years time charters, with some of them with profit sharing. So we actually do not uh, choose, uh, we do not choose a segment. Uh, I think we let uh, the client choose whatever... Uh, so we're like, a, you know, a, a car rental. If the client wants a stretch limo, we provide a stretch limo. If he wants a, a small smart to go around town, we provide a smart. That's, uh, that's what we do. Good analogy. I like that. Um, yeah, a, a, as an equity investor, I'm always curious about companies' approaches during these tough cycles and, and what are the things that they can do to maximize shareholder value. I think, you know, a couple of things that we think about as equity guys is, number one, you can really attack the OPEX side of the house. I think the other side is you could also manage your capital structure appropriately to make sure whether it's through selling older ships or paying down debt, you, that you're appropriately capitalized for where you are in the cycle. I don't know, Lois, maybe I'll start with you. I mean, what are the things that you're doing right now to make sure that you're best prepared to leverage a, a cycle if it does turn as we're kind of all expecting in the next year or so? No, I mean, absolutely, you know, we um, want to be able to give that comfort to our investors through the down cycle. And um, International Seaways went through a whole process and continued to really carefully manage the vessel expenses. Our G&A, which was, um, you know, a multi-year effort to really bring that in line and to become um, what we think is up, upward in the best of class. And uh, the fixed cash flows that come from our joint ventures give some protection from the downside of the market. So, um, 
in 2018 from our um, FSO and our LNG will be about $50 million in fixed cash flows. So even though you're subject to a very soft spot market on the majority of the tankers, we have like eight on time charter, but proportionately we get a lot of comfort in from those JVs. So when you, when you add in, you know, controlling everything that you can control, um, which includes all of your, uh, you know, operational expenses and your overhead, and then making sure that you have that comfort to give the investor um, through, through the down cycle. Ted, how do you guys think about that at Navios? It's a, a broad portfolio of companies, so how do you think about the interplay between them and what can you guys do specifically so NNA is ready you know, when the market does turn? Everybody has a different model and all the models can work in their own way. Our model has always been, whether it's dry or, I mean, containers a little bit different, but dry or wet, is that you, you, we like to put our ships on short-term to medium-term charter and longer-term as the market prevails. Uh, because usually, in, the bottom, in general, rule of thumb, bottom third of the market, time charter is going to be well above spot, right? In the middle part of the market, time charter is going to be above spot, but then it's going to narrow dramatically. Um, and at the top end of the market, spot flips over time charter, and that's when you do your two- and three-year deals, when people are screaming. Yep. Um, having said that, on the tanker side, that differential between time charter and, and voyage business is a lot closer than it is on dry. I mean, it's dramatic on dry, but it's a bit closer on, on, on tankers. Well. So uh, like everyone else, we like to time charter. We like to show future cash flows. We have, uh, I think it's circa 50% fixed. I think 40% on, on a fixed rate with profit sharing. Um, so you, you want to protect, as Angelique always tells us, you got to protect the downside and, and the upside will take care of itself. Bob, any thoughts? No, just what you know. Everyone's mentioned. I mean, operating costs are important, or a small, well, they're a large piece of the revenues right now. Um, but fuel, mm -hmm. fuel is an important component. It's, I think it's the single largest controllable variable that there is. And um, you know, during good markets, like a lot of things, you know, when money's easy, you don't you don't focus as much. But uh, fuel is a single component. Got it. So as we're thinking, and if there's any questions from the audience, feel free to raise your hand. We're getting down towards the end of the presentation here, so let me know if you do have questions. If you guys would allow me to sort of dream the dream here a little bit, and let's assume that you were, we're all right about sort of rates rebounding as we're coming out of 2018, heading into 19 and 20, could be potentially very good. H how do you think about where this next cycle could um, stand relative to previous cycles we had. And maybe the best way I always think about this is where do you think VLCC rates kind of should be? And whether they're in a broad range, I'll give you that latitude because I know this is a difficult question, but this is the kind of stuff that we get asked all the time from investors to sort of sensitize where we think these cycles could play out. So Christian, on the research side, maybe I'll ask, start with you, see what your views are, and you can answer that from a Suez or Afro perspective given your sort of, you know, your exposures, but what are your thoughts? I mean, it's difficult to really um, predict the shape and the length of the cycles because a lot will depend on factors that we can't see at the moment. You know, how many ships are going to get ordered in the next cycle when we get the upturn? what's going to happen on the demand side. Uh, but like I said earlier, I think the, the 2020 is pretty interesting. And as Bob said, it's going to create a lot of new trade on the fuel oil, on the gas oil, at a time when the fleet growth is low. Um, so if you think about mid-cycle being maybe 40,000 a day on a V and maybe 30,000 on a Suez and 24, 25 on an Aframax, something like that, we should get back to at least those levels, you would hope. Um, the question is always how long is it going to stay up there right before before the turning point? And what seems to have happened is that, you know, in the 2000s, you had maybe a four to five year up cycle. It was a very unusual market. 
um, really driven by China. And then you had a very extended down cycle following that, probably four or five years of bad market. I think what we're getting back to now is a bit more of regular or what I would term normal cyclicality of kind of a two to three year trough to peak, peak to trough. Um, so that would be kind of how we envision it, that we'll see that run up into maybe uh, 19 and then 20 being probably the, the real good year. And I would hope that rates would get to at least those mid-cycle, but hopefully in, in excess of those levels if we get a real strong market. Okay. Good. Nick, do you have a view? Does that sound about right to you? Yes, I mean, I, I mean, what we do not want uh, is to have a, a dramatic increase in rates because that will create a dramatic increase in private equity jumping into shipping again. So I think, uh, um, I think if we can, uh, we can live with a, a steady, let's call it 35,000 for VLs, 30 for the Suez maxes, 27 between 25, 27 for the Afra maxes, and then anything around, uh, you know, the upper teens for the for the MRs, and uh, you know something starting with a seven mid-sevens for the LNG long charters, I think that will be a good sustainable market for two or three years before it becomes, uh, if we start seeing 50s and 60s on VLs, then very soon uh, uh, we're going to shoot ourselves again on the foot by over-ordering. Over so. Does anybody order before, in, in, in the next, you know, before IMO regulations, before we have some clarity on that, do we see any material ordering before can, that? Can I just add one more comment? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the problems, there are many problems with shipping, but uh, one of the problems is the bankers or the, uh, the PE groups or, you know, the KGs um, or Wall Street, sees a lot, they can put a lot, of a lot of money to work quickly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, shipping takes a lot of money. Occasionally it gives some back. But, um, you know, the danger becomes when there's another source of capital somewhere that sees, you know, the numbers involved and the upside and says, geez, you know, PE, PE came in and the problem that PE had was they, all they did was want to buy new builds because they could put a lot of money to work really quickly and they could actually control where the money went. So they never bought secondhand ships. That was too much work. You know, luckily our backers allowed us to buy ships one at a time. Um, you know, like a real ship owner, I think we did it efficiently and effectively and we did okay. Uh, the KGs, the same thing, just pumped the money out tax-based. And even the Koreans, um, hopefully they've gotten their fingers burnt enough with the shipyards the past few years that they don't think that building a bunch more shipyards will enable them to put a lot of people in steel to work. So it's always what you don't see that kills you. Um, you know, you don't see the bullet coming or hear it, but I, I don't see any huge chunk of capital out there, so I hope, and the commercial banks are, are finished. Um, I, I finished being aggressive, so I, I hope there's no big chunk of capital coming, and if there's no big chunk of capital coming, I agree that maybe the cycle will be a little bit longer than last time. Of Lois or Ted, you have a comment on there as we're wrapping up? Yeah, I, I listen to ten, five and ten year averages for the V's are in the mid 30s, and I think it's 10 and 20 averages in the low 40s. Just remember one thing, and that means if it's an average, you're above that rate for half the time. So I'm a little more optimistic. Um, I, unfortunately, being the biggest part of the biggest unregulated industry in the world, it was just a few years ago we were at 64 for an average. Mm -hmm. And you could hit that in the next few years. You will have people coming in and ordering. It's been that way since the 50s, and it's going to continue to be that way. So the object is, for those of us here, private or public, is to manage those cycles, get the ships out, get them on time, try to get the cash flow going in before the crazy money comes in and, and over overbuilds the market. Because it happens. It's, our job is to dampen that volatility on a seasonal basis and on a longer-term basis. Lois, last word. 
I would just say that, you know, from the supply side, I think that we're seeing some um, good trends in that dry cargo has revived, the containers are picking up, so you see the yards not quite so desperate. You see them with a slight amount of more discipline because, um, you know, some of the uh, refund guarantees actually had to get paid out. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, um, you know, you're seeing a little bit more uh, control over some of the um, growth capacity in the yards. So hopefully that keeps getting rationalized and that'll help us um, prolong the cycle. Perfect. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.